Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was World Party with World Party. I've got a great pleasure to welcome Carl Wallinger here today to the Strange Brew. Welcome, Carl. Yeah, it's great. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is about the vinyl reissues yeah. that you've been doing of the World Party albums. Where are you in the, that process now? Because I think the, the albums have been coming out on a staggered basis. Yeah, uh, yeah. February was Private Revolution. Yeah, uh, March I think was Bang, and then um, Dumbing Up came out in May, and then Jumbo's out on October the 29th. Oh, fantastic! And then after that, there's a double album of Egyptology. Dumbing Up's a double album now, and uh, Egyptology's a double album as well. That's coming out on Record Store Day next year. So where that you've been putting them as as double albums? Have you been adding any extra tracks, or have you just? Yeah, I mean, basically. Um, the uh, Egyptology has got us playing the, uh, it's got like a, it goes over three sides, the actual album, because I just sort of, I just thought that the, the the CD, it's okay, you know, and all that stuff, you can fit it all on. But on an album, it was a bit crunchy for me. I didn't really like the, mm-hmm. so I took the album over three sides and then put these same tracks from that tour from a live show. I think it was Irving Plaza or something like that. I'm not sure where it was. But uh, I took, uh, you know, we made it into a kind of gig side, you know. Of the, mm. uh, so, I mean, it just depends what you fancy, really. So, But it, it, it sits well over three sides. And also, um, I think I included both the American and the British releases tracks. So the whole thing is there now, you know what I mean? So Because they were different records in the States by two two tracks were different on each one. So in a way that these albums are, are kind of like the definitive statement, then I, I assume if you're doing that. Trying to make them so that they, yeah, so that they sort of fulfil, you know, the, the, the brief of being the thing that gets let out as the, the sort of the last time it gets remastered or something. You know, I don't know, you know, maybe they'll keep getting remastered every 20 years after I pass off this planet, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, you know, but I, mean, it's, I don't, you know, I mean, I think after this, it's, it, you know, it's just new stuff, basically. I guess it's a good way of um, reflecting on the past, but almost clearing the decks. Yeah, very much so. I think that was uh, true as well with archaeology. There's still archaeology, which was a five CD set on in a diary that sort of went all the way up to 2001. And there's, so there's sort of 20 years of stuff that hasn't come out, really, you know, and um, mm. that'll be another sort of archaeology, too, I think, in the end, you know, because... Uh, I just want to do new things now. So um, I'm sorry, but I missed out the last 20 years. <laughs> but uh, it was mostly playing live. Really. Lots of catching up. Well, I mean, I think there's enough there for something that's interesting that's along the lines of archaeology, whatever that is, you know. But um, but I'm, I, I'm into sort of new fields again, and, and uh, I don't want to go back over that. It's a way of bottling that period of world party, and then you're, you're able to move on to the new stuff, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a different time. You know, it's been... I, I lost the studio. I didn't lose it. I just moved out of there in 20, 2012 mm. and then really mainly just played live for sort of uh, four or five years. Then I started building down here and we sort of put a studio together here. But it's taken a little while, but I mean, it's it's great. And um, I didn't really, you know, I didn't go into, the, I, I was I was at Seaview in, in London all the time for like 30 years or something, you know. Mm. And um, it was good to have a time away because it gives you a good perspective on things, you know, and you kind of, you want to be in the studio again. You know, I kind of didn't even want to be in a studio for two or three years. I just was really enjoying just playing live, you know, so that was great fun. Yeah, revitalising yourself, having that break and and, and things being a little bit unfamiliar again and exciting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I mean, and also coming back into another world, it's like a whole, I mean, every time we came out with something, it was a pretty different world, but this is like taking it to the extreme. I mean, you know, this, this, everything's saying, I mean, I'm a completely different age. I mean, I'm sort of ancient, but um, it's a completely different age in many ways, you know what I mean? Um, with the techniques and the technology and, and, and it's a, it's a strange world, but it's a wonderful world as well, you know, in that respect. I mean, you can do so much, but then there's a lot that is going on that is like machines, you know, mm. but there you go. But I mean, it's, it's just cause you can, and that's kind of what's simultaneously exciting and, crazy about the, the times that we're in you know I, I definitely want to keep a positive spin on things i was i was watching somebody the other day and it's very easy in this world of, of like uh political shenanigans and wars and covid and stuff mm. to get a kind of a bleak view of things but there was this guy i saw on uh, bill mayer's program the other day and he was just saying uh you know saying all these amazing figures i can't recite exactly what they were but it was to do with education and and uh hunger and life possibilities is better now than it's ever been in the whole history of humanity, you know? So yeah, we might be doing a lot wrong, but we've, we've managed to pull ourselves somewhere. Mm. It's easy to forget that things are amazing. You know what I mean? Cause everything you hear is a kind of bad news thing. You know what I mean? So mm. I'm trying to make that my focus really, not that I'm going to be like singing like, Hey, ho everybody. You know? <laughs> it's a contrast in a way to, um, the first world yeah. party single, Ship of Fools, uh, in the, it's got that opposing opinion of, of, of things, yeah. humanity on the brink. And, and, and you're right that the, the world as a whole is, is actually levelling out to a certain extent. But at the same time, yeah. there is the risk of things getting yeah, yeah. worse. And, and that song, even though it's quite a long yeah. time yeah. ago now, almost 35 years, actually is, is yeah. still no, very omnipresent. I mean, it's great that it's still out there and it's still doing things and all that stuff. But I mean, it's... It's kind of a drag, really, that we're not like, oh, I don't want to listen to that stuff. It's too depressing. It's so great now. You know, <laughs> we all play the good stuff, you know, all the time. And, you know, it's, it's happy music that doesn't embarrass you. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, and sort of why do you want to play that old stuff? But it's still, yeah, a lot of people say, you know, it's it's got resonance still. And it's it's kind of more, a lot of people say it's more true now than it was then. You know what I mean? So you know, it's kind of a weird one. But it was just a tra- it was just something that arrived. It's it's like I didn't I didn't sort of sit down and think, oh, I've got to make an environmental tune. You know what I mean? I don't. I try to do everything as unconsciously as I can. You know, rather than consciously. You know, it's not. I don't sit there thinking about what would be nice to write about, isn't it? Doesn't make you warm and fuzzy singing about the world. You know what I mean? It's not. That's not what it's about at all. You know? I just I just come up with ideas and they work or they don't. You know, so that's it. When you look at Shipper Falls, that's a very fully formed songwriter. Yeah. Had you been storing up songs over the previous decade? Yeah, I had. I, I mean, Shipper Falls was probably two years old or something when I when I bought it out, you know, and I'd had it. And it went through many changes and metamorphoses and stuff. But, I mean, it was pretty much the same chords. But um, it was Sail Me Around Tomorrow for a while. I put a few of the demos on, on my Facebook page, actually, that... There's like completely different versions of it up there, you know, which is, uh, I think it's on the, maybe on the World Party page or something, you know, and um, you can sort of listen to how it kind of formed, you know, from a, a strangely quiet midnight kind of or three in the morning kind of sort of gentle jam, you know, to a sort of a rock song really, you know. So. I heard that Leonard Cohen used to write songs over many years and he'd go back to a song and then literally put it in, in like a shoebox on the shelf yeah, yeah. and then come back yeah. to it. Did you come back to songs that you, you were writing at the time? You know, there was a couple that I wanted to sort of get right, which was Ship of Fools and uh, 
that was about it, really. I mean, Sugar Falls and something else. But most of that album was done, you know, I arrived in this place in the country and it was an amazing old house that I'd sort of just found by chance. Just the estate in Woburn had put an artist in there to, you know, sort of let someone get installed in this big old country house that was a rectory. Hmm. Uh, The people had moved out and they didn't want other people to squat in it. So they put this artist in there. And the, the local estate agent, when I was inquiring about renting a place to do an album, he said, oh, go and see this guy, you know, at the old rectory. And I went and saw him and I, he said, yeah, have a room, you know. So I had a room and uh, it was an amazing time and all these songs kept coming out and I'd set everything up, you know, and he was like, it was like 11 o'clock at night and he was across the hall in, in his room, sort of thing, going to sleep with his missus. And I was in the room thinking, oh, I can't really make a noise. And he put his head around the door and went, come on then. <laughs> And I just thought, what a fucking amazing place this is, you know. Mm. And um, I just really kind of had a great time there. It was really, you know, it was the first record and I just had a lot of inspiration, I guess, or a lot of time to, you know, to receive. I was there sort of on my own a lot and uh, it was a really good time. And the place was very beautiful. And there were 12 doves that lived in the roof that I always thought of as the, mm. the, the sort of souls of the nuns that used to live there. There was a nunnery in the past as well. You know, it means it had all these kind of, crazy vibes and I just was really you know into the whole thing you know I just wanted to do it for so long so that was an amazing thing that first record it was it was great fun and you used the world party moniker as opposed to your own name was was that kind of on purpose yeah I I always wanted to do a band you know I didn't want to do a solo thing you know and to be honest Carl Wallinger you know I mean it's like I don't know, you know, it's not like exactly sort of ripped torn or something, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> or, you know, or even, you know, I mean, it just, I, I didn't want to do a more, I I just wanted to be in a band, so I had the chance to create one. And that's why I used a lot of um, made-up names on the back of the record to make it look like there was a band, you know, and all that sort of stuff. All those names are sort of just made up, you know, Will to Win. And, and, and you know, obviously Sinead was on it and mm. Steve Wickham and Anthony and uh, Thistlethwaite. And, um there were real people as well, but I made a lot of names because I wanted to be in a band, you know, I wanted it to be a band, you know. Yeah, it became one really in a, in a way um, over the years, you know, there were certain regulars that, mm. that that we kept working together, you know, and it was like, that was the band, you know, and it was a band, you know, for a while. Where they keep all the darkness you need You sail away 
in essence, because the, the first album was predominantly a solo yeah. project. When when did um, people like Chris Sherrock and Guy Chambers come? Was that soon after? Yeah, Guy toured the, the first album, and then we settled in to do Jumbo. And, yeah, he was into that. And, and also we moved the studio from Woburn in, during the Jumbo period. I did a few tracks for Jumbo in the country, but then halfway through, the studio became available in London in a big rehearsal complex. There was a few thousand square feet going, and it was like... You didn't have to worry about the noise, and it was a. I wanted to be in a studio now, having been, you know, crawling across the bed to record the drums, kind of thing. You know, what I mean, I wanted to be in a place where they, you know, you could actually put mics in other rooms and have mic boxes on the walls and record lights that went on and stuff like that. You know, it was just a great place, very funky place, and also if you needed a Mellotron, you could just get the just same one up in the lift, you know, because it was all the gear was down there. So that was amazing. There was a cafe. So you could get food and it was just the perfect place to be really, you know, and I was there for like 30 years, you know, so something like that, something, something crazy. It's 25 years or something. It was a brilliant place, you know, and I got this desk out of Wessex Studios, which was, uh, which I still have uh, called a Cadac desk. And it was a big fucking thing. It turned up and uh, that was amazing. And the sound there was really great. And, and Jumbo ensued, you know, and it just, you know, you just got into it. It was like, a, I don't know, it was just, drawing me in all the time and just getting into the writing and the whole thing you know it was just it was just a great time great time and chris sharrick came along after i finished jumbo right we were going to go on the road with it and uh i'd seen the lars on night network which is what happened on channel four i think in the night at that time at midnight it handed over to this thing called night network and the lars did a kind of one mic performance of uh there she goes i think it was and i just thought wow what a great drama you know and I love the tune as well. You know, it's brilliant. And uh, I happened to be talking to somebody and they knew he was, he, I think he'd stopped doing the band and I just sort of phoned him and said, come down. And he came down with a Beatles Hoffner bass. He was a drummer, you know, and he came down with a Beatles Hoffner bass and we just sort of went, ah, oh, you know, great, you know. <laughs> and um, he just, then he stuck around for a few years, you know. And uh, same with Dave, Catlin Birch, I think Guy and Jeff Trott, who was uh, from a band called Wire Train, who, who sort of played with Cheryl Crow mainly and did a lot of those first albums with her, still writes with her. They went out and they saw Dave, Catelyn Birch, performing in a nightclub in Soho and and got him to come up, you know, to the studio. And um, he was amazing. So that was the sort of last bit of the puzzle, really. It was, you know, me, Guy, Jeff, Dave and Chris Sharrock were the main sort of band, really. And then we had various people around that, you know, and... And there was a lady that joined us on that tour, Max Edie. Right. And she sang some backing vocals and played some keyboards. So it was it was a very good unit that was. I mean, I li- I've enjoyed all the manifestations of the bands over the years, but I mean that was a particular particularly good one. Just going back to um Goodbye Jumbo, it's a great sounding record. Yeah. God on my side, uh, Love Street, and of course put yeah. the message in the box. Yeah. Am I right that it Recording that album, you, you took more time than the first. Is is that right? Um, well, I mean, the first one, I had my whole life, you know, to, right. to lead up to it. So, I mean, it's as you get that with people as well. They do their first record, and then it's like, whoa, what are we doing? We've got to do another one in six months or something, you know. Hmm. So, uh, I just wanted to have enough time to have something. I mean, I could have put hmm. an album out that year, but it would have had like two of the tracks that ended up on Jumbo and a whole load of other ones that I didn't think were good enough in the end, anyway. So. You know what I mean? It's like it's, you just edit, really, and when it feels right, you, you go with it. You know, so um, 
but I'd rather put something out that was that was strong, you know, and had you know lots of interesting things on it, as many as I could get on there, you know, uh, for people to enjoy, you know, it's, rather than two tracks which you think are good and they're the singles, and then eight tracks which sound a bit like the other two tracks but not as good. <laughs> it seems to be a lot of what happens, you know. I mean, for many people, Goodbye Jumbo is a special album for them and it, it works as a whole album, you know, start to finish. Yeah. Um, there's quite a bit of melancholia on, yeah. on there, really. Yeah. You just write about what you're feeling, you know, so that, you know, there are times when it's good to get it off your chest, you know, and uh, mm. hopefully it's got a wide range. So that just is part of the journey, you know, there's there's, there's rocky things and there's groovy things, you know I mean? It's, it's just a whole different little meal really
the record company were soon after the release of Goodbye Jumbo were pushing you to keep recording and, and do new stuff. Is that right? Yeah, that was the, that was the sort of that was the fulcrum. That, that was the that was the moment really that when I look back on it, it's like that's the moment that it all went sort of pear shaped. Really, you know what I mean in a way mm. because. I don't think you put an album like Goodbye Jumbo out and then spend six weeks touring it and then go back in the studio for three years. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, there were tours on offer. We had an offer to do some dates with Neil Young in America and uh, we got sort of pulled from the possibility by a kind of record company management dispute. And uh, that was a real sort of stupid one, you know, but um, shit happens and you that, you know, but that was the moment really that... that you know, it's almost like that's when the the origin of like your fate is sealed. You know what I mean? Like, uh, mm. so I mean, it was it was a downer. But I mean, I would have liked to stay on the road for a year or something like that with that album. You know what I mean? It just would have been great. You know, we would have been much more in the consciousness because we went away so quickly. Even when we came back, the, the next album went in at number two. Bang, went in at number two. Mm. But it's like it was too long. You know what I mean? So it was it was like one of those and the number two and then out. You know. It didn't sort of have any stability because not enough people had heard of us, you know, and weren't anticipating it. So it kind of, uh, that's where it all sort of uh, fell apart, you know, for me, in the business sense anyway. Mm. Not musically, I just, but that's where this sort of, the the trail through the through the uh, the music business sort of started getting a bit brambly, you know what I mean? Mm. And on the album, tracks like Is It Like Today, up there in, in the pantheon of, of your music, um, what's it like playing and singing songs like that today uh, do they have a, a a deeper resonance or a different meaning yeah i mean i think i don't know i mean i just think they were based on things that were real and you know were a sort of worded enough to make sense over a long period of time rather than just to be something that happened that summer or something you know what i mean it's like mm. and i don't think that there's a problem with that i think it's good to have a song that's that summer song you know what i mean is it like today was a a four verse edit of Bertrand Russell's history of Western philosophy, you know what I mean? Mm. Which was what I was reading and enjoying and was thrilled to come into contact with because I'd never known anything about that before, you know. I'd, I'd never been told about the idea of philosophy, you know, and what it has, what its part in our world, you know. And I just, and he was such a great communicator, various reasons really. He was just, uh, and the logical nature of him, the kind of Vulcan, you know, he's a bit like Spock really. Mm. Um, he's he's quite sort of logical and doesn't really dither with sort of uh, suspicion and myth and you know and all this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, religion. He's not a big fan, and it, it it just I found it very enabling. You know, and I found him wonderful, and didn't know why anybody didn't tell me about him when I was at school because I just think that people should learn about people like that. So the record was very affected by it. You know, and is it like today was a particular instance of that, and it just was a moment and Dave was playing brilliant bass and and we I sort of recorded it with him. We played it live together with a little drum beat going on and then put the drums on later kind of thing, I think. I get it must have done because I played drums on that one. Don't worry. 
it feels like World Party were, were ahead of the music industry in terms of the music scene that, that came by the mid to late 90s. Yeah. When you look at the early years of World Party, the music scene and the sound of the music scene was so much different to what you were releasing. And then yeah. like five or 10 years later, yeah. it feels like you were kind of five years ahead. I was just interested by the things that eventually came through. And I was the exponent of that kind of music. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a jazz player. You know, I, I'm not a, mm. a folk rock. You know, I'm not a, you know, I don't really play funk i mean i do use all those elements but i just um do them in my own way and that, that's why the sort of the beatles as a band and as songwriters were the sort of kind of ideal you know what i mean and it was just uh mm. they were very good at doing what they did and uh it just seemed to me like that was the sort of star sort of thing you know and uh and a few things on the way as well you know like like the lars was a great record to hear and the stone roses album was a great album to hear and kurt cobain's output was really amazing and uh Mm. these things just come along Prince you know was great you know it was just like there were certain things that gave you kind of a frisson of, of like wow that's amazing you know so that's really great when that happens I just wanted to be doing stuff that made people feel good and made me the things that made me really interested in music and thinking oh that's really you know that's right that piece of music that's I wanted to do that but I thought the only way to do that is to be honest with your feelings and mm. try and find a melody and, but try and do it without thinking about it. Try and just make yourself open enough to the ideas to just find the ideas without, I find as, if I do anything on purpose, it's terrible. You know, I'm useless at writing things on purpose, but I have to be, I have to lose myself to find those things. Do you think that that, that freedom in a way and and that uh, boldness to, to follow you, the path or the muse, lends itself to some really interesting tracks like And God Said, yeah. which many artists wouldn't, wouldn't go near yeah. but work. I mean, I, I learned to sing, you know, operatically for a few years by a marvellous bloke called Warren, Warren Green. And he was a little guy and he taught me, I was doing some music seriously and I sort of sang funny Benjamin Britten songs, which were very weird and stuff like that. But I had that experience of it and it was... It just sort of comes out in, you know, when you do a comedy thing, you can do it a bit more realistically, I suppose. I don't know, you know, it was just, it was just, it was just funny. And it was just had a punchline. And it was just a moment of sort of, you know, Guy was very adept at putting the, the right sounding classical music at the background. And I was mm. standing there becoming two different, a baritone and a tenor kind of thing. Mm. And overdubbed them and just sang rubbish and just... I mean, there are hundreds of things like that. That was just sort of one of them, you know what I mean? But some of them are more finished and some of them are just rubbish and some of them are just, you know what I mean? They're just things that happen when you've got a studio around, you know, which is great. That's why it's been great to have a studio. It's just, we've had one all the time, all the way through. I've, I I recorded some of the Waterboys. Um, this is the C record in a, in a flat in the West End, you know, in, on a sort of small unit that I went and did the first album on after that, you know what I mean? So I'd been recording in little rooms and, big rooms and stuff for quite a few years, you know, before I came to do this, but, but it was just being fascinated by it and being fascinated by the music. The, the, the gear is a means to an end. I don't do it because I love the gear. Mm. I love the gear. If it performs and disappears and does what it says on the box, I don't want to sit there looking at it really. I just, I just want to use it. You know what I mean?
after that period and around the time of Egyptology, was it predominantly you and Chris by then? It, things had been paired back. Me and Chris and Dave maybe were with Bang. Right. And uh, and there was a couple of guests on there as well. And then for pretty much back to me for Egyptology, really. Like, you know, she's the one I recorded one afternoon to send off to, to the movie, you know I mean? Like uh, uh, there was a film that was called She's the One that was meant to be the soundtrack. And then Tom Betty, who was doing half the soundtrack, decided to do all of it and release an album. And so I got the song back and then I put it on Egyptology because it didn't have a home. <laughs> but I mean, it was just, I don't know, you just, you just, you're reporting on where you are now. So that's where I was, you know, Egyptology. It's like Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, you know, I, I said goodbye to my my ma, you know, and that was out of that, you know, was that. Just, um, you know, it is time is like a, it just wanted to be beatly, really, didn't it? I just went with it, you know, whatever it was, you know. And She's the One, I think, was on there, wasn't it? Yeah. Did you get the award for She's the One for your own version, or was that because of the... No, 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 Robbie Robbie got the award for his... He got the, what was it called, the, 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 the awards? I can't remember, the, the Brits, is it Brits, is it? Right. I think it was, was it Best Singles? I don't know, I don't know what it was. But uh, yeah, he didn't, get, he didn't sort of do any name checking. I think he was about to fight Liam or something at the time, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> He was like, he was calling him out for a punch-up sort of thing. Even Andy Williams has uh, recorded a version of that. Oh, she's the one, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, love to hear that. <laughs> That's amazing. That's full circle. I mean, there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of funny full circle things happening, you know. I mean, I remember uh, we were sitting in the in the, in the the Ronnie Scott's and and Paul McCartney went past with Linda mm. at the time and, uh, and, and he'd listened to it. I think she'd listened to it, uh, Goodbye Jumbo. And uh, he came past the table going, to the top, that's the hit on that one. <laughs> Show me to the top, he was like. And uh, it was just amazing to get this this knowledge that he'd heard what I'd done because I was doing what I was doing because I'd heard what he did, you know what I mean? Mm. And he'd heard Buddy Holly and Buddy Holly had heard, you know, Hank Williams, you know what I mean, whatever, you know, like it just goes on. So you can't be separated, but you also have to find the things that are yours to do. You know what I mean? It's like a strange thing, really. It's like, you can't be in a bubble, yeah. but you can't just regurgitate, you know what I mean? And I've never, I've, I've, I've used things, I've gone quite close to the bone, but I've never really, I've never stolen directly, I'm pretty sure. I just feel like I'm an exponent of that kind of music, but it was great to get a sort of, you know, to know that he'd heard it, you know, and that sort of thing, you know, it was brilliant. Just going back to She's the One, I, I like Andy Williams' version, especially because he's an older yeah older singer it adds a different dimension to yeah. your version yeah uh, it, it's different yeah so cabaret elements sort of thing that kind of idea yeah I, when i was 10 or something i used to watch his show you know and i think with the, when he had didn't he have the osmonds on there and stuff you oh know? yeah yeah he used to come visiting and they used to do a few numbers together at christmas and things like that you know it's pretty wild We were fine all along 
somebody calling me on she's the one when you get to where you want to go and you know the things you want to know you're Around that period, you had trouble with with your record company. Yeah, well, uh, the, the Egyptology it was the Egyptology that came. It was all it was very strange actually. And the whole every time I came back with a record because I waited three or four years, there was a different vibe in the business. There was a whole different lot of people at the company. Right. It was very weird to have no sort of continuity with anybody, you know. And in the end, uh, I had an album that I was meant to be doing that they didn't have a sort of no or yes over. And there was an advance that went with it. And I said, I was so pissed off with how they'd done Egyptology and the whole thing, the way we got treated, basically. And I just sort of said, look, just give me the catalogue and I'll walk and that's it. And we'll just call it a day and and that's it. And uh, and they did. So I got the catalogue back and I, I walked and I didn't pick up the advance. I just sort of said, no, thanks, you know. And I took the records because I just thought, there's got to be a future in having your own copyright, you know. So and that's hmm. basically what I've lived on 
since then so i was right you know so yeah you you, you, you certainly certainly were right but especially these days if if you don't yeah, own I mean, your own music yeah. you're not going to absolutely no but i was really i mean and that's been amazing you know it's not like i'm a millionaire or anything but i mean I've earned more money by being in control of it than I would ever have done if they'd just kept it there and they could have sat on it and never released it again, you know. So um, it was good to get it all out of the whole corporate thing, you know, because it went mega corporate, basically. I think my time has always been the end of something, you know what I mean? There's never really been a beginning or we've been too early. Yeah. So we kind of arrived at the end of the 80s too early for the 90s thing, but too late for the 60s thing kind of thing. It's like... You know, it was just a strange thing. We kept doing that. But, I mean, if that's what it is, and that's what it is. You, you can't be something else, you know what I mean? So you just do what you do in the best way that you do it and then the trying to be, you know, as inspired as you can be or whatever, and you live your life in the way that you just live it. And I don't really tend to think about it other than what am I doing today, you know? Like, I don't sort of think about the past or think about the future, really. And I just really want to bring out a new album because that's the that's the main thing, you know. That's the sort of uh, hmm. hopefully it'll be worth waiting twenty one years for. So there you go. there's a lot of demand. Well, I hope yeah, and I hope I can fulfil it in a way that's like, hey, that's interesting, you know. So it's good. I'm, I'm I'm very happy at the moment with that. So that's good. Before we get more up to date, I just want to ask you about the Dumbing Up album. Um, yeah. th- that's an album that feels like it, it deserves a, a wider prominence, and I assume that the vinyl reissue will be a chance to put that album front and center you know material like another thousand years or yeah what does it mean now um are still yeah. high in your canon uh, yeah i mean it's um well I, I think you know you just live your life and he takes your chances and the world treats you as it does and that's just an album as well you know so you know as well as a life you know what i mean it's like a a piece of work comes out at a time and does its thing and it reacts in a certain way in your you know in your trajectory you know, you might not be in a position to promote it in the way that you wanted to, or, you know, it's it's just one of those things. So that's really why it hasn't been heard, because we didn't have the same machine behind us, you know, that we did before, you know. Yeah. So, But I put the whole thing together and, uh, you know, made it a double record, and uh, hopefully it's a good listen. That Basically, that's it, really. You know, that's all I can do. Face to face with the truth, you're laughing now. 
Archaeology set for many has been really well received because it's not it's not really a greatest hits that the, there are versions of yeah many of the tracks but it presented something different yeah. material that people hadn't heard as well yeah that was I mean I really wanted to do that I really wanted to like you know yeah you got to sort of fulfil a bit of these sort of hit sort of expectation but I just put only live versions of tracks that have been on the albums apart from a version of what is love all about which has got right. Andy Newmark's drumming on it. And I just wanted to put that on because I kicked myself for not using that version in the end. But um, so that's the only kind of 
track that's on an album that's not a live track, if you know what I mean. And then all the rest are sort of unknown bits of stuff, you know, whether they're fully realized or just demos, you know, they're just, it's just, a, it was just meant to be an interesting diversion, really, you know, so, um, and something you could play as a separate little album, you know what I mean? So the first album of that, those five is meant to be like yeah. the nearest thing to an album. And then the other four things are like just random tracks and live versions and crazy things like uh, the version of Lucille, where I, I, don't, I don't know how many of the right lyrics I sing, but it's it sounds weirdly something. <laughs> but it was great fun to do, you know, so. On that first CD, there's Everybody's Falling in Love. Yeah. Was that a, a new track or some, something that you'd uh, dusted off? And... They, were all, they were all written before 2001. Yeah. And I basically finished that one and finished a track, the first track called What Does It Mean Now? Isn't it? No, uh, no, it's a, uh, no, it's not What Does It Mean Now? It's a, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, oh, wait. waiting such a long, waiting such a long time. Yeah. And those two and Photograph, uh, I finished uh, at the time of the release kind of thing, you know what I mean? So they, but they were recorded and written back before 2001. So there's nothing since 2001 really on the record. So that was my sort of cutoff, which is when, it's basically everything pre-aneurysm. <laughs> yeah. There's still there's probably still twice as much as that again from that period, but I'm not I'm probably not gonna go back there. But I mean there's all kinds of bits of stuff. I mean we're in a studio all the time and people who come in are musicians, so you end up making brackets at all times of day, you know what I mean? So it's good fun. Let me know 
it seemed strange that in a, in a similar way to archaeology that the material off Big Blue Ball took quite a while to come out, but again, it has got, again, really well received. Mm. How did that happen and how did that collaboration with Peter Gabriel occur? I just got a phone call and said yes, you know, and just went down. I didn't know what to expect or what was going on. Or I mean, I understood there were all kinds of artists from all over the world, and I just thought, what an interesting idea. I think, I don't know whether I'd been, I might have been to Real World before, I don't know, I don't think so. And that was a beautiful place and it was a great studio. And I just sat upstairs in in Peter's room with him and uh, the engineer and the, you know, a uh, couple of guys there from the, the place that he worked with. And then we sort of were joined by different combinations of incredible players, you know, like, um, well, people from sort of Egyptian uh, fiddle sections that played in quarter tones through sort of Japanese percussionists to Jar Wobble, Sinead and... Uh, Nigel Kennedy, you know, I mean, it was just a weird, and there were these uh, guys called the Terran Quartet who were a Russian tank crew, supposedly, mm. and they were a balalaika trio with an accordion, and they were a fucking amazing. Mm. I think one of them was, or one of them at least, uh, might have died since then, but they were really, truly some of the best musicians I've ever seen on any platform, and they were they they were kind of a comedy thing. And they were kind of virtuoso sort of balalaika players kind of thing. And they made them sound like, sometimes it would sound like um, Cole Porter or something, you know, like mm. like a, a, a string section being plucked. And sometimes it would sound very harsh. And, and they did sort of standing up and sitting down kind of visual jokes mm. with the songs that they were, because they were a mixture of like uh, folk music. And you know, it was just an amazing thing to see. And another amazing thing down there was this guy, he's a little guy, he, you know, he was a sort of diminutive person, sort of thing. He he was uh, had a severe face, and kind of reminded me of some sort of in my stone stupory, uh, as some sort of like um, kind of some sort of pagan god. And he played this little tiny flute in it, like a like a ocarina or something, like a mm. like a blow you know blowhole sort of like little patchy thing. And he could only play three notes on it, but he 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 made the melodies out of lots of notes. And what he was doing was he was playing the flute and then making the other notes with his voice. But it all sounded like the same instrument. And it was one of the most kind of profound bits of music I've ever heard because it was like, wow, that's we're going back here. You know what I mean? Like I was just lying in a kind of on a grassy bank somewhere listening to this, you know, in my mind, I was completely removed from the studio and it was just, it was quite amazing. And you don't hear stuff. You know, it was just people from all over the world who did a thing. You know, they did a thing. You know, and it was like amazing. They used to put an eight-minute groove down, right? And then we used to wheel people in basically to play together. So it was like a world thing. You know, it was like and sort of weird that it was it was very world party-ish actually. You know, in a lot of ways. And I, and, and I loved working with Peter Gabriel because I, you know, I'd been a big fan and uh, quite irreverent in lots of ways. But but I, I loved it. It was great. It was great insight to have into how he worked and. You know, I love his voice, and um, you know, he's a he's a crazy guy. You know, but um, I, used to, I sort of went up to him when we were making tea one day, and just went, "A carved old table tells a tale of times when kings and queens sip wine from goblets gold." <laughs> <laughs> and sort of gave him a nudge in the ribs, sort of thing, and he was like, "Oh, don't do that," you know. <laughs> but it was there was a bit, you know, it was like a nice atmosphere. It was good, man. It was. Uh, and the people there were amazing. The studio was amazing. And there was like 
all kinds of producers, John Leckie and um, Phil Romero. You know, he died not long ago. And he was doing Toto La Mamposima, who was a, a Colombian or, yeah, Colombian musician, I think she was Colombian. And uh, that was pretty, you know, people were making albums all over the place with all these artists. And we were the people who were taking them and putting them together, you know, and having a sort of, you know, another album out of jamming together, you know what I mean? So it was it was amazing. It was amazing. And I did it for two years in a row or something like that. And uh, and then uh, at last it came out sometime, 20-something it came out, 2012 or something.
You're a songwriter notable for other artists um, recording your material. Sean Colvin, uh, Roseanne Cash, uh, Brian Kennedy, uh, Icicle Works even. What do you make of um, other artists' versions of your songs? I think it's great. I mean, I, I, I tend not to be too ju- judgmental because I've done, when, I, when I've been done horrible versions, I've done some horrible versions of other people's songs myself, but... Hmm. You know, there's nothing been very horrible. You know, there's there's been a few that I might not, you know, sort of think was like, oh, what happened there? You know, mm. but you know, on the whole, it's great. I mean, it's what it's it's the song's life, really. It's not it's not you. The songs have a much more varied and interesting existence than the songwriter. I think you know, mm. they get played at parties, at funerals, at moments of specialness, and uh, you know, maybe personal things. You know. They have their life. They they have a life all of their own. So when someone does a cover of them, it becomes, you know, they kind of change their co- colours and sort of become some other type of version of themselves. You know, it's a strange. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. They've got their own life. You know, they've they've done. They've been to many more places than I have. You know, it's funny. It seems a, a similar thing um, when you're playing live as well, because you get a chance to air those uh, songs sometimes slightly different or a, a more acoustic yeah. ver- version. I mean the. I know. I love. I love doing the three piece thing. That was great. We did it for a few years and intermittently had band tours and stuff. But on the whole, we did three piece for you know quite a few years. It was a fiddle player called David Duffy, right. who's amazing, and uh, Johnny Turnbull, the guitarist from the Blockheads, who was a neighbour in Crouch End, and we just sort of ended up going on these crazy tours. And it was just the three of us. And it was travelling so light, and we could do a little bar with like 60 people in and then we could go and play Bonnaroo you know for 25,000 or whatever it is 30,000 people and there was no sweat it was just like there was no drummer there was no keyboard rig it was just a keyboard with a plug in it you know I mean that was it it was very simple and very pared down but we still kind of got the same sort of reaction you know it was a weird thing I was thinking what what the hell are we doing doing all that stuff with all the gear you know but it's good to do the full band thing and it's it's a whole different thing. So it's just a different experience. So it was great fun. You know, it's great fun to do them. I really enjoyed it because we could go, we visited a lot of places on the road. We'd stop by at, um, I don't know, the Johnson and Johnson headquarters designed mm. by Frank Lloyd Wright and go around there for the afternoon or go to the, the woods where William Thoreau lived. You know, the, he was like a 1780s or something, somewhere around there. He was a, like a first naturalist, uh, well, ecologist really, you know, a writer. But, um, it was nice to hang out in the woods there and see the pond where he used to go, you know, skinny dipping, wherever, you know what I mean? So, and I got much more familiar with America over that time because it wasn't like a regular tour, you know. Over here, when we went on the road, we stopped off in the uh, government code breaking place in. Uh, oh, Bletchley Park. Yeah, Bletchley Park. That's it. Thanks. You know what I mean? It's like crazy stuff. Yeah. The live album that captured that period, I think it was released maybe. 2014 because there seemed like a, a real connection between you and and the the audience and it was it felt like a bit of a a celebration of, of the world party material yeah that was it was great they were always it was always great and the, people, the songs like i said they had their own life so the familiarity of the songs to the people is really great it's what it's almost like there have been gigs where i've actually had to sort of feed off the audience's enthusiasm to get to the place where they are at you know what i mean with it so it's kind of a strange one, you know, that happened really early on in Glasgow one day and it was, they were so into it and we had to sort of get up there with them, you know what I mean? Because they were just, mm. it's just an amazing audience up there. But we were all on the same level in this kind of crazy, it was like a hotel dining room. It was like in 1986 somewhere in Glasgow yeah. and uh, it was like a sort of in a restaurant. And so we were all on the same level. 
So they were just sort of standing in front of us in a big crowd and we were playing to them. But they were like going crazy and we all went crazy in the end. So it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It sounds like you're very much a a now future focused. And and then once you've got these um, these excellent vinyl reissues out of the way, hopefully you'll you'll start assembling that that new material. And uh... absolutely, no, that's what I'm doing now. Really, that's I'm I'm, I'm, there's a record store day uh, album coming out for record store day, which is a different. It's only eight tracks, and it's been um... curated. Yes, thank you very much. Ding! <laughs> Curating, it's been curated by the Record Store Day people kind of thing, you know what I mean? And uh, we just went and cut it and I did the cover and um, sent it off to my my buddy who's like the, the label art department and um, he, he sort of put it into you know, the right programme and uncrossed the C's and dotted the D's and that's coming out in uh, on Record Store Day next year as well, so as well as Egyptology, so... That's another record. But I mean, it's um, hopefully by the end of 22, we'll have the new album out. That's the idea anyway. But I've been saying that since 2016, I think. So I'm pretty sure, though, that this is... I mean, having come down here and everything is set up and I've been playing on things and, and making music now for a while, but it's just really nice to be in a different place. And uh, the Sea View Studios, which is what it's called, has finally got a sea view, so that's really nice. So looking out over the English Channel. Is the new material sort of a la Paul McCartney that you play and sing everything, or have you got anyone else? Well, I've been doing a lot on my own because I've been really into working on my own because, I'm, like I said before, I haven't had a studio for a while, so it's such a novelty to me, and I'm sort of getting back to my roots, really. It's good. And enjoying being in a different place. So it's almost like I want to just explore my own mind, really, before I invite other people into the craziness, you know what I mean? Thank you so much for your time, Carl. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And um, there's been a really great reception to the reissues. And um, it's obviously great to hear um, that there's new music coming and uh, there's going to be a lot of people um, really looking forward to it. So thank you. Yeah, great. Well, it's been a long road back. You know, it's been a crazy time, but it's it's well worth it. And I've enjoyed it. And actually, we played more than... Between 2006 and 2016, we played more than ever. We played. Yeah. So uh, it's, it was great. Just got to get out there again. Maybe that's the thing this time, because you've, you've built up through those live gigs and obviously we're in a different yeah. era with the internet. You've got that Yeah. You've got that audience now for, for that new material. Yeah. So see how it goes. Just got to get those songs together, that, that those irresistible songs. <laughs> Easily done, not. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot. See you later. Bye-bye now.
Thanks a lot. See you again. Being really great. A great place. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.